This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity Season 2, and I'm Pat Hazel. I'm joined today by a nine-year veteran of Saturday Night Live, a series regular on weeds and man with a plant. He is the host of Hiking with Kevin. He's a writer, a stand-up comic, and a talented visual artist that shares with us the secret of capturing a good caricature. He gives us an artistic nod to Leonardo da Vinci, and he reveals touring advice he received from Joan Rivers. Coming up, a self-proclaimed people pleaser who has a knack for disappointing. Stand by for my friend, Kevin Nealon. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery. The curse of creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. Hey, how did I do? I'm really pleased, and I hope you're pleased with me. Why you had to be here was because you couldn't say no. You know, part of that is true, but I yeah. can't I can't say no to you because you're one of the good guys. I would say that what I didn't say in your credits is people always say, what a nice guy Kevin Nealon is. That must be just a, a burden to carry. It's not a, so much a burden as it is a cover. I think whenever anybody says somebody's a nice guy or a nice girl, something is going on behind them, which is the case for me. Great. So let's start there. <laughs> let's go deep into our creative therapy, because I also remember you writing a pilot called The Pleaser. And that was great fun. I was involved in hearing the reading with your, you and you wrote it with your wife. And I, I really wondered what, what the truth was in all of that in terms of writing a show called The Pleaser and then being a pleaser and then co-starring it with it, with your wife in, in both the writing and the reading. So like, tell me a little bit about how that, how that went down. Well, it's autobiographical uh, because I, I thought I was a people pleaser for a long time, but it turns out after going to therapy, I'm not really a people pleaser because that's kind of a weak person. But I just had trouble saying no to people. Now I'm really good at it. Let's give it a try. Kevin, do, do you like bananas? I've always liked bananas. You're still suffering. All right, let's try another one. How do you feel about the color red? It's not one of my favorite colors. I'm, I'm more of a blue guy, green guy. So I will say do not add red. No, no red. Yes, I heard a no. All right. So tell me, though, uh, about that. Now, did it from when you were a kid, was saying no hard to friends, to neighbors, to wanting to be involved? Well, in you know what, Pat, I'm not a therapist, but from going to therapists, I think uh, when people have trouble saying no, it, um, it's, uh, it's um, kind of a way of wanting to be liked. You know, you don't mm -hmm. want to disappoint people. And, um, and then I found out that by not saying no, I disappoint people that are the closest to me. I would say yes to people at the expense of family plans. Ah, yeah, no, I can relate to that. 
I, I mean, I think all artists in a way, uh, it comes in different forms. Sometimes it's accolades or it's applause, but there's always a desire, I think, to be appreciated or recognized or applauded in some way. We're in a kind of an upside down time where what would be traditionally your routine would be stand-up comedy and sitcom performance and being around people. But but now there's a lot of alone time. So you've, you're doing a lot more uh, visual art. You're doing a lot more painting and drawing and so forth, right? Yeah. I like to paint. I liked drawing people, whether it was portraits or caricatures. or uh, And I always, always loved the Impressionists, you know, like the French Impressionists. And, um, and I always thought one day I would focus on that. And it wasn't really until the pandemic that I've had that time and kind of sparked that interest again. And I really like it. Thinking maybe getting more into that than maybe even comedy. Uh, probably a lot of people don't know about your artwork. So I would invite them to check it out on Kevin Nealon artwork. Uh, that's on Instagram, right? Yeah. Uh, and I went there and looked, and there's so many amazing uh, portraits of of eclectic people. Christopher Walken and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Tilda Svensson, like really iconic folks. So, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is like when you try to grasp onto not a character, but the character qualities you know, what, what's the first thing that you that you zone in on when you're doing a, a portraiture like that? Oh, well, it's funny because, you know, you look for things to exaggerate on people that are slightly exaggerated already. You know, once you fall into that kind of that groove, you can't stop. Like, I'll just be walking, I'll be, I'll be sitting in a restaurant, and I'll look at the person next to me, and I think, oh, if I was drawing him, you know, he has the bushy eyebrows, and he has, you know, so you can't stop looking at people that way. It's really just letting go. It's hard to exaggerate people and 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 really let those char- those character traits uh, explode, you know, because you tr- you know you have so much of a mindset to draw exactly what they look like. So to really stretch that is difficult. To let go of that is difficult. But I find you know drawing caricatures is a kind of like. Stand-up comedy. It's like telling jokes. It's like you take something that's normal and you exaggerate it. Right. You multiply it to a point. Like I noticed that the the painting of John Bolton, his mustache is like a whisk broom over his upper lip. <laughs> yeah. And yet it somehow looks just right. Yeah. In the style that you're working, you kind of go, well, he really captured that. Also, it's like it's like when you start stand-up. I haven't really developed a style yet of drawing. I'm, I'm trying to find it now. It's the same with stand-up. When you start, you're emulating other people. Like, you know, I was big fans of Andy Kaufman and um, Albert Brooks, Steve Martin. So, you know, that's who I was kind of doing when I started stand-up until I developed my own style, whatever that is. And and I'm doing that now with the artwork. You know, I, I've looked at other artists and I've seen the way they've drawn. It started all the way back with Mort Drucker from Mad Magazine, the way he used to draw. Yeah, I noticed your early drawings were much more uh, sketches. Uh, what medium are you working in? Well, I started off drawing on napkins on airplanes. I would draw people next to me sleeping or, you know, looking at their iPad because I was so bored on the plane. And then I brought a sketch pad. And also the sketch pad helped me because there was a phase where I was going through a, a bout of claustrophobia. So if my airplane got stuck on the tarmac, I would, you know fumble to get my sketch pad out and my pen, I would just start drawing and that would kind of make me relax. So I started, you know, I was just drawing on sketch pads or even on in the margins of the SNL scripts during the table read 
when we were going through the table read, I would, you know, I'd be, if I wasn't in the sketch or if it was like hour two, I would be bored and I'd start sketching like Chris Farley, who was sitting across from me or Phil Hartman or anybody who was sitting across from me. And so I have like notepads, you know, full of those kind of rough sketches. You know, I did a Tilda Swindon uh, picture and I tried to do that on canvas with acrylics and it was just wasn't happening because I didn't know how to prepare the canvas mm -hmm. and I, and they were old acrylic paints. So I think what I have to do, YouTube is great. You can learn everything on YouTube. I just need to get on a site and, um, you know, learn how to paint with acrylics. And I'll see people in a museum painting a picture and I'll be thinking to myself, dude, that's been done already, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I love, I love the idea of going to Europe for like a month or two. Like I just finished reading, um, Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. And this guy was just amazing. You know, what a creative genius he was. But he had no patience and he didn't finish a lot of his works. Even the commissioned ones, he'd have to give back money because he'd lose interest in the painting or it wasn't good enough, you know? And then sometimes he would paint a picture and the critics would say, this is off. You know, the, the arm, this arm is too long and this isn't right. And then they realized he was learning about perception like when you walk by a painting how it follows you or the body changes you know yeah so i found that really fascinating it's like the michelangelo stuff where it's meant to be seen on the ceiling with scope on a dome and they have to be able to project what that what that face is going to look like from the ground looking up but if you're up close it's probably distorted in some way yeah yeah, and they talked about Michelangelo in the uh, in the book too about how he did not get along with Leonardo da Vinci or with anybody really. He was very uh, contentious. You know, he would get into fights. Uh, he didn't bathe for a long time, and also Leonardo kind of criticized him. He goes, you know, Michelangelo he, he paints like a sculpture. His lines are really hard lines. They're not like Sufado, where it's kind of soft lines the way you really see things. Those people didn't sign their works back then either. Or at least the, Da Vinci didn't sign his works. Sometimes there were commissioned works where it didn't matter who painted it. But I guess, uh, I'm not sure why. Maybe it took away from the painting. There are certain styles and um, um, you know methods that they could determine that it was painted by like Da Vinci, for example, because he was left-handed. So all of his, his hatch strokes were going from, you know, Instead of, you know, right to left or whatever, they're going the other way. And he wrote backwards, too, because he didn't want to smudge the, the ink with his, with his hand here, you know. So he'd go this way. Uh, and, you know, and I would go to France and I visited Monet's house, you know, and where he painted the lily, lily pads. And, and then I would go to the museums in, in Paris, the Louvre, and, and uh, where he had all the, the um, lily pad paintings. But I remember my son was like young at the time and he had no patience to be in there. So we had a, a, a private tour guide that was taking us through and telling us about each painting and I was loving it. And I remember telling my wife, I said, why don't you stay and look at the paintings? Hoping that she'd say, oh, no, you stay. <laughs> but she didn't. And I, I, I took my son out walking past all these beautiful paintings that I'd read about for so long, you know? <laughs> But I eventually went back. I went back. I just like the whole idea of, you know, painting in plain air. There was a local gallery that I used to go to in, uh, in Malibu. 
And I love this one woman's paintings, you know, in plain air. And I said to the gallery owner, I said, do you think that I could ever watch her paint? Because I knew she was a local. And she goes, oh, I'm sure she would, wouldn't mind at all. So I got her email and I, I connected with her. And she said, I'm painting the sunrise down by the rocks, you know, be there at five o'clock or 520. I'm like, oh, okay. And she goes, bring your easel and your, your canvas. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> Yeah. So I brought it with me. I was really nervous, you know, and, um, and she had, of course, like five or six canvases because the light changes every like three minutes. So she was painting like five different canvases, but it is all about light. A lot of it's about light and how, you know, I was, this is funny. You know how, uh, Van Gogh's painting are like starry night, the way he paints, I was leaning against the, um, a fence about a month ago somewhere and I was looking at a street light and I guess my eyes were a little like squinting and the way the circle around the light looked just like a Van Gogh painting. So he must've done that. You know, he must've seen that about two summers ago, I was at LAX and I was looking through my Instagram at different artists. And there was this one guy, Paul Moise at Moise Paul, M-O-Y-S-E Paul. He uh, offered art instructions. He lived in England. So I took um, art classes with him last summer, how to draw caricatures and use uh, the Wacom digital tablet through Photoshop. And so I would Skype with him once a week and he would critique my artwork. But a lot of it kind of came down to him explaining Photoshop to me because I didn't know how to do Photoshop. So 70% of it was, Paul, how do I get the stylist you know, to dip into the paint and how do I change the brush and how, how, the, what, how do layers work? And it wasn't so much, you know, giving me lessons about how to draw this nose better. No, I get it. That's interesting though, because you're working in a fully digital medium. I am now, but I do want to paint more. I want to, I want to actually have canvases and, uh, and use paint like oils and acrylics. Uh, and I don't know that, you know, there's a part of me that feels like this is cheating a little bit. On the digital tablet, although a lot of people say it's not, it's just another different, it's a different art form, but uh, it is so much easier and it's not messy and it's quicker. And, and I imagine you can correct something if you choose to pull. Oh yeah. 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 You could change anything. You could, do you, you've never used Photoshop, right? Uh, there's so many things on computers that I always say, <laughs> if I just did some no, I'm telling you, if I did prison time, I could do this, right? Like, but instead I tell, I ask people, but I don't really spend much time on it. Well, this pandemic has been like prison time for me. I've learned, I'm learning Spanish now. Actually, what I do is I sit in on my kid's class, you know, online. I'm outside of the Zoom and yeah. he takes Spanish. So I'm, I'm learning Spanish because, you know, we're paying a lot of money for him to go to a private school online. And then I'm taking a photo, uh, digital photography and that he's also taking he's also taking it and i sit outside i'm taking notes and then i have a guidance counselor meeting next friday i'm not looking forward oh, to good that. good yeah well it's nice though because you can amortize the cost right so you you can feel a little better about the two for one that's true that's true but let's talk about a, a really fun moment for your son when he graduated from fifth grade i remember you and i had just worked together at a club and you went home and uh, Gable had become the MC for the graduation, moving from elementary school to middle school. And so he 
was following in your footsteps as the host of the event. And yeah. you texted me, we got to, we got to write some jokes for him. He's a really funny kid. He's, he's uh, got all kinds of great mannerisms and thoughts and he's very confident, but he already had started by writing a series of jokes about the principal, as I recall, right? Yeah, he did. He did. It was like everybody knows the principal. So there's the target. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to be the father watching the son in front of the audience. Hang on a second. I'm going to shut the door because he's online. Yeah. I don't want him to hear me. Okay. It's going to be good. I know. So while he's shutting the door, everyone, uh, it, it's, we've toured together and Gable has always been there getting room service and whatever. So I've gotten to know this kid, but seeing him, he's just a charmer, right? He just charmed everybody uh, in the fifth grade. So uh, Kevin is now in the soundproof booth and he can talk, speak freely about his son. So anyway... Yeah. He um <laughs> Yeah, so he he chose to be the MC. I think it was 6th grade. Okay. And um and he we rented a tuxedo for him. He was the only one with a tuxedo and he was on stage and we would rehearse in my bedroom. He would come in out of the bathroom, make his entrance, I'd introduce him and he would come in and uh, he'd start talking. I said, "Wait a minute, wait for your applause. Gable, wait for your applause." And then he'd have his jokes uh, all handwritten on index cards, and he'd go through them. And I'd have to, like, slow him down with the timing. Wait, wait for it. There's the joke. There's your laugh right there, you know. <laughs> and so we rehearsed it a lot, and we kept writing jokes, and you were helping. And um, uh, I can't remember all the jokes. but So we get there, and he's really excited and a little nervous. And he's got his tuxedo on that we rented. And... Um, he has index cards, like four of them, four or five, and he's going to hold them in his hand if he needs them. And 10 minutes before it's about to start, he can't find the index cards. <laughs> so we're running around the whole you know, auditorium looking under tables, under auction places, items, you know, and he was just like beside himself. I said, if you can't find them, Gable, you're a funny guy. Just go up there. You'll, you'll be great. I gotta have them. I gotta have them. <laughs> but he finally found them. And, oh and then everybody God. was looking for them in the whole place. <laughs> Everybody's lucky. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I remember seeing some of the clips and it was so, it wasn't just sweet. He was really killing. The shot he took at the principal wasn't a light one. It was so funny. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, that principal passed away about a year ago. No. No, I'm kidding. Okay. I thought you were. <laughs> Let me talk about another thing, though. I know you have Hiking with Kevin webisodes that many, many people watch. And there is something about the walk and talk that opens up a creative part of our brain. You're an avid hiker and you have, a, you know, a wild number of celebrity friends. So you're, you have a, a bounty of folks to talk to. Well, first of all, I'm not an avid hiker. I'm not really a hiker. I'm more of a walker. You know, I don't even think I have a pair of hiking shoes. I just wear sneakers. Are they still called sneakers or are they running shoes? Or I think now they're running shoes because nobody can sneak up on people anymore. It used to Nobody's be you sneaking could. anymore. Nobody right. sneaks. It used to be so much sneaking. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the hikes, um, I think there's something, um, you know, when I used to walk, when I looked at the beach, I would hear people walking by me, like in, on the Venice Strand. You pick up the middle of the conversation that these people were having, and they're always so intimate and revealing. And then I'd go on these trails, like in these canyons, and the same thing. I'd pass by, you know, a couple women or a guy and his wife talking. And the conversations were always so intimate and private and 
And I realized that when you're hiking with people, they're much more open. I don't know if it's from the endorphins, from walking outside or not having an audience there or the lights, but they feel comfortable and they're much more open and revealing. And I think that's why some of these hikes have been really interesting. Uh, and I get home and I edit it and I think, I can't believe, I wonder if they're okay if I leave this in, you know, or, you know, and they typically are. And, uh, and so it's, yeah, it's, it makes for a very nice um, format for interviewing people. And I try to ask questions that aren't, you know, typical that they've been asked before. Right. You know, well, like, do you floss? Do you floss in the morning? How often do you floss? <laughs> you know? Well, it puts them off balance. I mean, I think, first of all, it's fun. It's quirky. But I think once people realize they have to answer somehow, you know what I mean? It's like when you take them on a hike, it's like taking them out. Uh, it's like a hostage situation. <laughs> it is. It is. They're so going back, right? Until this guy takes me back. Well, I started hiking with people that I knew, friends of mine. And then I ran out of friends and I had to start sending uh, emails to publicists introduce myself and almost starting from scratch and say would tom brady like to go on a hike with me or whatever whoever it was you are a shooting star a lifelong stranger to solid ground november is a time of gratitude so i wanted to take a moment to say thank you to our loyal listeners for supporting season one we appreciate all that have rated reviewed and shared the podcast this is the official launch of season two, and coming up, we have more incredible insights and inspiration from a Hollywood screenwriter, a world-class photographer, a network showrunner, a Food Channel chef, a street poet, a music giant, a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, an award-winning illustrator, and a paleo artist that creates life-size dinosaurs for science and history museums. Part of that was to go down into the tomb, take measurements from the mummy itself. The curse of creativity is number one is you're going to suffer from imposter syndrome. I think of myself as an accidental technologist because my goodness does this industry need us. It needs creative people to be there at the inception. You've identified one of the things we get characterized with, which is that we do melodic music that has some kind of torment under the surface. The most recent physical conundrum was to get this megalodon into the Smithsonian. I wrote a comic book and I just submitted a pitch to Marvel for another comic book. Because creativity is all about control and if you ever do get complete control then you're dead. That is what we call a tease. Now back to my dialogue with comedian and visual artist Kevin Nealon. Let's talk about other first accomplishments that were a big deal, because I think you and I share something in common, which was a Tonight Show appearance as a stand-up comic with Johnny Carson as the host. Can you tell me what the experience was like? That was probably the highlight of my career. I mean, even, you know, over SNL or Weeds or any of those things, you know, it was just because I was a stand-up. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a stand-up comic. And I really had no other aspirations to act or do anything else. I wanted to be a stand-up comic and um, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so um, to do The Tonight Show validated you. You know, it's like passing your bar exam as a lawyer, especially you know with Johnny, because Johnny was the only – Johnny Carson was the late-night talk show host. There wasn't like, um, you know, a goggle of talk show hosts like there are now. And um, 
And so to get on that show was quite an accomplishment, as you know. And it was nerve-wracking, too. You know, I found out like three days before that I was going to be on the show. And I had to go to Houston to do a gig that weekend. So I couldn't do that five-minute bit that I was going to do over and over again. So I was doing it in my head. I was doing my five-minute stand-up act in my head over and over. And I could be talking to you now, but I wouldn't really be listening to you. I'd be doing my act in my head, you know. And so I get there, and I'm standing behind the curtain, ready to go on. Johnny is introducing me, and the band starts playing to bring me out. The curtain opens up, and I totally went blank. I couldn't remember my act. And I walk out to my spot, and the audience is applauding, and finally the last applause stops, and it came to me. And I started doing my act, and I started getting laughs and applause breaks. And I couldn't, I was saying, I was like outside of myself. I was saying, I'm on the Tonight Show. Johnny is right over my right shoulder. I hear him <laughs> laughing. I'm doing great. I'm killing. This is so great. And I ended my act. I turned to said hi. I went behind the curtain. And then the talent, the segment producer, Jim McCauley at the time, said, great job. I think Johnny wants to talk to you. Can you just stick around, you know, after the commercial? So after the commercial, I went down and sat on the panel with him. And I still had a lot more jokes that I threw. And he still had cigarette smoke coming out of his mouth from the commercial break. And he <laughs> laughed. He go, and a little smoke came out, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and it was probably the highlight of my career. And, and I remember um, thinking after it taped, before it aired, that, you know, a couple hours, please don't let there be a natural disaster where it would be preempted or anything like that. And I watched it and I've never, I've never, I wish I had a different outfit. You know, I, I belabored what I was going to wear. And I remember seeing Ted Danson on there once and he had this khaki pants and a burgundy jacket and a tie. And I thought that looks pretty cool. So I wore that and I looked like I was an usher or a page, you know? <laughs> I saw an early picture of you on there and it looked like you were wearing like a sofa cover. So it was like a, it was like a, <laughs> Kind of a plaid, you know, but again, it's the era when you look back at pictures, no ideas were good. No haircuts were good. That sort of and thing. Everybody wore a jacket and tie, you know, unless you were George Carlin. And he even started out with a jacket and tie. Yeah. Boy, he was, he had short hair in the works when he was on Ed Sullivan. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that the, my experience was a little different because I had some magic in my background. I had done card tricks. So while I was waiting in the, in my dressing room, I got a message from somebody that Johnny wants to see you in his office and what? Be, before, right before the show. Now I didn't know that's not the experience. So I go, Oh, he must welcome everybody. So I get taken to Johnny Carson's office and we're in there and I'm doing card tricks for him. We're doing things. No. He does a coin trick called the hanging coins, which is very, very difficult with five half dollars. And, and I go, man, you, you can still do all this stuff. He goes, I practice all the time. And I'm like, you do? And he goes, yeah, that was my first love was magic tricks. We, I was in there 45 minutes. Wait a minute. Were you nervous being in there with him? I, a little bit nervous, but more, it was more that, that he was from Nebraska. I was from Nebraska. Like for some reason, I felt like it was a, a very avuncular greeting, right? Like, Hey, I worked at WWT. Do you know Pete Petrashek there? I go, yeah, yeah. Pete gave me a film clip one time, you know? So it was very interesting connection. How lucky you were because that loosened you up, didn't it? It totally loosened me up. And then someone's banging on the door. John, we got a show to do as if we were like kids in a bedroom, right? Like get wow. out here. We got a game to play. So I was very, 
very, very relaxed going into that one. But but when I came through the curtain, boy, when they swept that curtain open, those they paged that curtain and you come out of that curtain. All I can remember is as a kid watching that curtain open every night for Johnny's monologue. And I'm like, oh, shit, I'm in charge of national television right now. Like, uh, you know, and my weirdest yeah. experience was I had always worked with a microphone stand. I had always had. Oh, yeah, right. And, and no mic stand. Right. It was the overhead boom mic. And yeah. I, I kind of drifted out there like I had been cut loose from a tether on a spaceship. Yeah, you don't, like, you don't know what to do with your hands. Yeah, so my hands were flailing, and then I put them in my pocket, and then I brushed my tie, and I was I was completely a fish out of water. <laughs> you know? I know, man. It's horrible. It was horrible, but yet great at the same time. Well, getting Johnny's okay symbol, that was your seal of approval. If if for a comedian, if you were going to get medal at the Olympics, it was being on that pedestal where Johnny gives you the okay. Because at that time, as you said, the real estate of not having all these shows meant that you had the endorsement that could then go on to, as seen on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, which was the approval of a club booking you or opening for another act. It was it was all the difference in the world to have that stamp of approval. Yeah. And then, you know, you get the okay thing. And then when he calls you over to panel, it's like, I never have to work again in my life. Right. <laughs> well, that may be true of you, but I was a much later graduating class where I knew I had to work all the time. <laughs> my panel got bumped by a woman that was dressing chickens up and she needed to do one more, this chicken's got to look like Eleanor Roosevelt or something. And I was like, oh, that goes my <laughs> shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it might, for me, my experience was twofold because I bumped somebody that was on, supposed to be on after me because I got so many laughs and I got panel. And, and she was an actress and I was single at the time and we started dating <laughs> <laughs> for like six months. Uh, because we had a mutual friend. My friend called me, hey, what's the idea of dating, uh, uh, bumping my friend? I said, that's your friend? She was cute. I said, hi to her. We talked a little bit. And uh, and uh, she was single, and so we double dated, and uh-huh. you know, we dated for like six months. So that was a good spot for me. You know, that really, that really paid off. Little perks on the side. Yeah, yeah. You told me one time early when we were traveling, uh, something that Joan Rivers shared with you about the trick to enjoying travel had it related to hotel rooms. Get a nice hotel, join the airline lounges, get in the uh, Hertz Gold Club so that your car is ready when you get there. You know, Joan Rivers' documentary was really, really fascinating. I didn't love her as a, a, a performer uh, on television because her personality size overwhelmed the screen and it always felt aggressive. But I saw her on stage um, in Oklahoma and Shanley was opening for her. And for some reason I was invited to come see it. And she was in a huge performing arts center. And that personality on a little, on, you know, a little thing on a big stage was really, really something. And, and what was interesting about the documentary was this time in her life where the vulnerability was its highest opening with no close up on her, no makeup, no anything in a gilded living room where she didn't have anything on her calendar for work. You know, there was exposed pain um, behind all of it. And this was just prior to her doing the apprentice that gave her career a giant revival. So bittersweet to 
to yeah. witness it. And and I had a much bigger appreciation again for the era and her joke, you know, filing and collecting and all of that kind of stuff. It's just a different school of thought. I remember she used to uh, work at the Improv in Melrose in Hollywood, and she would come with her husband, Edgar. She would have Edgar stand at the door with a clicker and count everybody that came in to make sure she was getting paid for everybody, for every ticket. The pay thing is very interesting in, in the business because it used to be, particularly music promoters who were the ones that would have the, you know, that have the ability to put a concert on. Um, yeah. You know, that's why uh, Colonel Parker would collect, a, you know, a giant brown bag full of cash before Elvis would work because these promoters wouldn't, they would only pay them if the ticket sales were there and they wouldn't always report everything. So it was, it was right. sketchy at best. It was, you know, I guess in Britain they would call it dodgy, but there was a lot of, they didn't actually own the venue, right? So you couldn't go back to the building and t they, these guys just rented everything and then they disappear in the night. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They would. It was, it those musicians really got taken advantage of a lot. I remember a comedy club in Sioux City, Iowa one time where I came in and I was headlining and the guy had this kind of, it was a, it was a bar in a hotel, you know, like a low end hotel. And in the first few minutes of being there, he said, can I borrow? I need 40 bucks um, <laughs> because I, I, I ran out of vodka and I need to send somebody for Walgreens. And, and I thought, wait a minute, I'm here to get paid and, and I, I'm lending the bar owner and he's buying the liquor at full price across the street. Like something <laughs> of this business model is really, he's not going to last long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he went on to do well. That's true, yeah. Opened up the Mirage in Vegas right. and did great. Yeah, amazing. And also uh, a friend of mine who was a musician gave me a good advice. He goes, keep all your stuff in the hotel room in one spot so you don't forget anything. And don't spread it all out. Like, you know, if you get a suite, don't put it in the living room. Just keep everything in, in the bedroom. Keep it next to your bed. <laughs> like you're a fireman getting ready to go on a drill. <laughs> but that's also when you're younger and you're leaving the hotel kind of hungover. Right. I used to write down travel tips. You spend so much time in a hotel room that people like Charles Corral said something like, um, always sleep on the opposite side of the bed from the phone. Because salesmen would sit on that edge of the bed where the phone is and make their sales calls. Oh, that's and it would leave a dent in the bed. That was always an uncomfortable side, right? And also travel with a clothespin so you could keep those drapes. They would stay closed. Oh, that's um, a good idea. I wish I had known that. Uh, there's a there's a new handy trick without – you don't have to have the clothespin. You know the hangers that they hang the pants on in the hotel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, those clips? They have two pairs of clips. You just take that off and – that's Take better. it over and hang it on. This is the great value you're going to learn today. Oh wow! Now I, you know. Now I'm not regretting this call at all. No, it took a while. Um, yeah. Speaking of take-home tips, this is a good transition for you to maybe, if you've got a a little creative pick-me-up, you can share. You know, I, I had I got some good advice during this pandemic from someone. I forget her name, but she said every morning. Get up and make your bed, first of all. Make your bed and get dressed. And that's good if you're depressed, too, you know, and you need to move along. Because then you feel like you've done something. You've accomplished something already. And then you can get the rest of your day going. 
and you can you walk back in your bedroom and go, oh, my bed's made. Oh, good. All right. Things are, you know, things are cool. You know, um, I like to, uh, I like to be prepared for things. You know, I like, um, I like what, whatever I'm doing. I like to be prepared except for this interview. That was the one thing I didn't prepare for. Um, let me see. I guess it depends on what you're doing. You know, if it is drawing or, uh, you know, I think, I think, um, if you're working out, if you're like, let's say you want to decide to get in shape and you want to start a workout program. I think it's, it always helps to once in a while get something new in your wardrobe, like a new t-shirt, you know, that you work out in or new socks, anything that kind of will kind of motivate you a little bit. Yeah, just a uh, a uniform uh, that, uh, in a way, creates a commitment to the activity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the same with drawing. You know, get a new pen or, um, you know, a, a paintbrush or whatever. It's like doing stand-up. You know, if you're bored with stand-up and you're going on the road, you're not looking forward to it, you know, try to come up with a new hunk so you, you look forward to trying it when you get there. Well, that there's an act of daring in that, and I think in early part of your stand-up, when you're writing, the adrenaline's so much about is this idea going to work? Is anything going going on here? And then the audience approves it, and it, it sort of explodes. And you never forget a bit that works. You immediately start to incorporate it in your act. But as soon, yeah, once you get settled, you got a 45 minute headline routine, and you're doing it all the time. Unless you've done it as a uh, HBO special and you have to discard it to move on, sometimes you can get in a rut. I think one of the most interesting pieces of advice that was ever given to me was Steve Higgins, who is Jimmy Fallon's sidekick there on, on The Tonight Show. Yeah. He watched a, a play that, uh, uh, that I, was, I had written with someone else. And at the end, he gave this one note, which was, there's a groove and you're not in it. <laughs> and I'm telling you, you know it. You know when you're a performer and you're yeah. you're phoning it in, right? It's so yeah. not gratifying or satisfying when you walk off no. the stage. Um, but you add just a few minutes that you can look forward to. It's like a bouquet on the table. You're like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Just one new thing. It really helps. I think it's all about adding new things to your repertoire, whatever it is. I think it's translatable to life. It is. It is lovely to have routines. But it is also very interesting that you can change your route when you walk. You can change your route when you drive. You can, as an observational writer and a comic, it is exactly where the stories, they're, they're not on the path that you beat every day. They're, yeah. they're one block over and you're missing them. Yeah, yeah. The other good thing I was going to say, Pat, was getting a new friend is always nice. When you meet somebody and you start spending time with that person, it's great. Because it's such, you know, friends are such um, a big part of your life because you share so much with them and you spend time with them. And when you meet somebody new, and it's not like you have a lot of time for new friends, but if somebody connects with you and you enjoy their company, it's really exciting because you, you could tell them stories that you've told everybody else and they haven't heard yet right. <laughs> or jokes and you're getting information from them. And you're learning things and you're meeting their friends. Making a new friend is a extraordinary way to open a door to new avenues for yourself. I think that's a fabulous advice. And, and you are a good friend to so many people. When I went to your birthday party, uh, let's say, of note, it was an anniversary of some many years, 
um, what I was fascinated by was the eclectic kinds of people that varied from actors to musicians to, you know, I got to meet Eric Idle at your birthday party, who was, a, for me, a childhood dream watching Monty Python and memorizing those routines. And it was all very regular folk. Everybody was just a casual uh. friend of 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 Kevin's. I appreciate your friendship and you're investing the time to to chat with me today and uh, to open uh, up all kinds of- I love you. I, I love you as well. And I don't mind in front of your wife saying that. Thanks, pal. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is a production of Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under Wizbang producer Amanda Rosenberg, with editing by audio aficionado Tony Deo. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Additional support, courtesy of our creative posse, Delilah Lovejoy, Casey Franco, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, on Facebook, or by visiting our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. Yeah, you heard that. It's dot fun because dot com is just not fun. Cheers. Stay.